in Tennessee, the most recent studies, is that the neonatal abstinence syndrome, which of course is a child being born addicted, in the last 10 years has increased nationwide three times. In Tennessee, it has increased 15-fold. That is what provoked us to act. Of those uh, neonatal absence syndrome babies, 94% are Caucasian. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court and my co-host Bob Ambrosi is off today. But here's a quick note before we get started. We are conducting a survey to learn more about our listeners and we want your feedback. Is there something you want to hear more about or a product you want to learn more about? Let us know. Visit LegalTalkNetwork.com slash survey and take a few minutes to fill out the survey. We'll thank you in advance for your feedback and also want to let you know that select listeners who complete the survey will be interviewed for an upcoming Legal Talk Network special report. Visit LegalTalkNetwork.com slash survey. And before we introduce today's topic, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Clio, an online practice management software program for lawyers at GoClio.com. Well, on July 1st, a new law took effect in Tennessee that holds pregnant women criminally accountable if they use illegal drugs while pregnant. More recently, the first woman charged under this new law has come to national media attention. She was arrested two days after giving birth and has since admitted to using meth days before going into labor. Her arrest has sparked a controversy between state interests and several groups opposed to the recently enacted measures. So here to discuss this topic, we'd like to welcome Thomas H. Costelli. Mr. Costelli is the legal director for the American Civil Liberties Union of Tennessee. Prior to joining the ACLU, Costelli provided litigation counsel to businesses and law firms with counsel on call and was a founding partner with Costelli and Knox LLP, a small general practice firm with an emphasis on employment discrimination and wrongful discharge. He also worked as an associate at Shulton Ward and Turner LLP, as well as Sutherland, Asbill, and Brennan LLP, where he focused on employment, construction, bankruptcy, and general business litigation. He's a native Tennessean who grew up in Murfreesboro. Welcome, Tom Castelli. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And in addition, we have joining us today is Tennessee House Representative Mike Carter. Mike is a longtime resident of Ulatwa, Tennessee, and I know I pronounced that wrong, who practiced law for 20 years and was appointed as a judge in 1997 by then-Governor Don Sundquist. In 2009, Mr. Carter served as special assistant to then-County Mayor Claude Ramsey. Then in 2002, he ran unopposed as a state representative to serve the people of the newly created 29th District of Tennessee. He serves on the House Civil Justice Committee, House Finance Ways and Means Committee, and the House Ethics Committee. He also serves on the Tennessee Advisory Commission on Intergovernmental Relations and as the House Judicial Oversight Panel. Welcome, Mike Carter. Thank you very much for having us. Well, Mr. Carter... You voted for this law. Uh, It was passed by a healthy margin, and it has significant bipartisan support. It also makes Tennessee the first state protecting an unborn baby in this manner. For the benefit of our audience, can you walk us through the basic elements of the law and the maximum penalty faced by those charged? 
I would be have to. It's a Class A misdemeanor in Tennessee, which means that you can be sentenced to not greater than 11 months and 29 days in jail or a fine not to exceed $2,500 or both uh, unless the statute provides otherwise. And that's what this statute provides. So it's a standard Class A misdemeanor punishment. And Thomas, what's the uh, ACLU's objection to the law? Well, primarily we, we object to it on three grounds, uh, constitutional grounds. The first would be uh, we think that it violates the right to privacy. And that, that kind of goes back into the line of cases growing out of Roe v. Wade in dealing with a woman's right to privacy with regard to her own uh, body and procreation. Um, we think that it violates uh, equal protection clause of the 14th Amendment and that this is, a, this is a crime that can only be convicted by a woman. And we also think that there may be some issues, some due process issues with the vagueness of the law, particularly with uh, exactly what the definition, uh, I think you may be getting to this sometime later, but definition of things like harm or treatment uh, that, that were written into the law. So those are kind of broadly the three constitutional problems that we've identified with the law. Does the ACLU plan on filing a challenge to the law? We'd, we'd like to challenge the law. Now, challenge the law requires that, that we have someone withstanding that's willing to challenge it. So uh, until that person comes forward and seeks our help, uh, we are, we're just trying to do what we can to bring some uh, attention to the law and, and make everybody aware of its existence. Well, Representative Carter, if the ACLU does end up filing a challenge, what's your thought uh, about this? You, you were a sitting judge at one point in time, so you're you have some some things to offer about this. Yeah, if I could, let me, I describe the black and white punishment that comes from potentially being charged with a violation of the law. First, I would like to for everyone to understand why I supported this bill. One of the things that I saw when I was a sitting judge was I constantly had uh, young pregnant women before me severely addicted to drugs. And I was constantly reminded that there was little, if anything, I could do to help the mother. Now, remember, motherhood is one of the strongest instincts known to exist. And so when a young woman is addicted to drugs and sells her body, breaks in, does any number of criminal acts, in order to get $20 to get a fix of methamphetamine primarily, then she is fully addicted. She is not thinking rationally. I did not support this bill to punish her. I supported it so that the frustrations I had when I was a judge of not being able to help her, I could go back and help my brothers and sisters on the bench to have a method of offering assistance to these women. Now, remember, this bill was passed in an atmosphere of where there is already a safe harbor provision in the Tennessee law. A person can exempt themselves from the prosecution of this act by one of two methods. One, by the very bill itself, checking in, becoming involved in a drug rehabilitation program, you cannot be prosecuted. But prior to that, and in existence prior to this law, was what we refer to affectionately as the Safe Harbor Act. I think it was started in 2012 or 2010, fairly recently. I was not a member of the legislator at the time, so I don't know exactly when it started, but it's been about three or four years. My research yesterday and today, I cannot find a single woman who has taken advantage of the Safe Harbor Act. 
Now, let me briefly explain what that does. That says if I go in for a checkup, I go in to see a physician, and I'm pregnant, and I'm obviously addicted. If I reveal that addiction to the doctor, and the doctor refers me to a rehabilitation or a program to help me with my substance abuse, that the Department of Children's Services cannot use my circumstances in any way to take my children away from me once more. Uh, as I said a few minutes ago, the latest results came in. I haven't found one person who has taken advantage of that. So if we start this conversation that the legislature in Tennessee and both liberals and conservatives broad base of support for this bill on both sides of the aisle, we did not look at this bill as a way to punish a pregnant woman. We looked at this bill as an opportunity, a tool that we could use to assist her with her addiction. In my nine years on the bench, I cannot tell you how many people were before me. We once did a survey, and we opined that 85% of all of our criminal cases were drugs or drug-related, not drug possession. I'm talking about they broke into your car in order to steal your stereo to sell it to get crack or meth, etc., have to understand, putting these people in jail, punishing them, putting a fine down on them, giving them 90 days in jail, is an absurd response to the issue before us. The issue before those sitting judges and those DAs and the probation officers that work in court who want to help this young woman change her life is that we had no way to do that. Now, the cold, hard reality of addiction is you're not talking to, for the most part, a rational thinking person. You're dealing with a person who has an illness, who is addicted and cannot think logically. So we can't set them down and explain that they're harming their child in the in vitro situation, that they're killing themselves. You can't do that. The only thing that most of the folks will respond to is the threat of prosecution. We do not have the jail space nor did I know of any judges who had the inclination to punish people for being addicts. That's an absurd result. So when I first read this bill, I said, thank you, Lord. This gives my brothers and sisters remaining on the bench an opportunity to present assistance to addicted women who will, in time, pass that addiction through in vitro to the child, and it will be born with that. So that's the background. That's the intent. And that's the, that's the thing. Now, when you have a bill that comes before the floor and it is supported broadly by liberals and conservatives cutting across all lines, and your opposition comes from the far right and the far left, when you have the pro-life people and the pro-choice people joining to argue against a bill, you know, something isn't quite kosher. And when you have the far left and the far right upset with the bill, you got to be doing something right. And so I'm not speaking for the House of Representatives. I'm speaking for myself. That was the basis for my strong support for the act. Tom, one of the things that the ACLU has indicated is that this new law may drive more women to seek health care from unlicensed professionals and other bad situations. But one of the curious things that I've got is, does this law under the ACLU's interpretation apply to uh, alcoholics as well as drug users? I mean, at some point in time, it is illegal to be drunk, uh, just like it is illegal to use illegal drugs. But is there uh, a problem with that? Well, I think 
there are a couple of different interpretations of this law as written. Uh, and the one that, that Representative Carter kind of just explained, going with that interpretation, this law only applies to, as a Class A misdemeanor, to pregnant women who use illegal narcotics that's that's defined in the statute by reference to another statute. So if that is the interpretation that this statute, uh, which is actually an amendment to an existing statute, but if it is limited to illegal narcotics, then that's delineated. My reading of the definition of illegal narcotics means that it includes any opiate, which would be your morphine, your heroines, your your pain prescription painkillers that are opium based. It includes marijuana and it includes cocaine. There's some dispute or some question of whether it actually includes meth. I think it was meant to include meth, but just because of the way the codes are written, it might not actually include meth, uh, and that'll be up to a, to a court to interpret. Um, there's another uh, way to interpret, though, the, the statute as written. There's two sections to the statute. Uh, one basically says that, well, the statute itself is what actually brings embryos or fetuses into the assault statutes in Tennessee. So it defines the word person to mean a person and an embryo or fetus. Then there is a section that specifically exempts from assault statutes pregnant women with regard to any act or omission concerning their own embryo or fetus. That has now been amended by the statute to say any unlawful act or unlawful admission, or any lawful act or lawful admission. So there is an interpret. It could be interpreted to mean that if a pregnant woman takes an unlawful act or an unlawful admission with regard to her fetus, that that could be criminally charged as an assault. Um, that hadn't happened yet. I, I don't think that that was also the intent of the legislature when they they drafted this. I, in fact, every. Uh, representative or senator that's talked about this, uh, including Representative Carter, has said what they're targeting is misdemeanor assault for women who are using illegal drugs. So I don't think that if we went off of legislative intent that this should cover women who abuse alcohol or drive drunk or do anything else that's unlawful that might lead to a result that causes harm to a child once born. They should only include the prenatal use of illegal narcotics, as defined by the statute, that causes harm to a child post-birth. Mike, what's the the boundaries of this law? Is it feasible that at some point in time, a man who uses drugs before he impregnates a woman may likewise be punished under this statute? No. No basis whatsoever on the statute for that. Can I give you a little background? I appreciate Thomas's comments there. Certainly. I think they're right on target. This bill is limited to the, quote, illegal use of a narcotic drug. Now, interestingly, and let me say on behalf of the legislators throughout the world, it's a whole lot easier to be a judge and say, what did they mean by that, than to be a legislator and make sure that we write that statute and just without any errors. Uh, Last night when I reviewed the statute for today's show, I said narcotic. Why did we say the word narcotic? And did we define narcotic to include uh, methamphetamine? Well, why? 
because in Tennessee, the most recent studies is that the neonatal abstinence syndrome, which, of course, is a child being born addicted, uh, has in the last 10 years has increased nationwide three times. In Tennessee, it has increased 15-fold. Uh, it is an alarming problem in the state of Tennessee and in primarily in certain areas of the state of Tennessee. That is what provoked us to act. Of those uh, neonatal absence syndrome babies, 94% are Caucasian. And so this is, when I was on the bench, I discovered an amazing thing. When I first went on the bench in 95, crack cocaine was wildly popular. It applied to all races, all ages, everything. As methamphetamine became uh, into the forefront here in Tennessee, at least, and became very popular, it divided along racial lines. It's amazing to sit on that bench and watch day after day. I saw the groups divide. I saw the African-Americans go with crack cocaine and the Caucasians go with methamphetamine and Hispanics simply go to work. So I, I divide them into three general categories. And what you're seeing now is, as a, this statute uh, is directed primarily by its impact, will be at least 94% of those people are Caucasian that it will affect. And so I have no racial divide in this myself, but practically that's where the division comes because it's a methamphetamine epidemic in Tennessee. And that's primarily our thrust and our intent. And I'm speaking only for myself and for no other member because I, I guess because I'm the only judge in the House, I have retired judge. I have a unique perspective, right or wrong, valid or invalid. But my perception is to sit there and see these women and not be able to do anything about it. And of course I could tell them, I hope that you'll go, I hope you'll do this, I hope you do that. But remember, addicts are ill. They cannot respond responsibly, the vast majority of them. And when a, a young mom, a pregnant woman, will sell herself, steal her grandmother's jewelry, do whatever it takes to get $20 uh, for another fix, then we've got someone that we've got to get their attention. So I don't see this as punishment, being vindictive. I, I'm not aware, and I go to the judges' conferences every year. I've, I've never met a judge that wants to put an addict in jail. That's like giving them a paintbrush and telling them to paint the wall and they'll be healed when they get through. We must address the issue and we must help these people end their addiction. Now, if we don't have a statute that allows us to get their attention and the only threat we have over them is the threat of incarceration. And let me finally say this. They have no fear of being locked up. That does not touch an addict's mind. What the incarceration does to the addict, it threatens them with time without the drug. Do you see that difference? And so we have to put that in the statute simply to get them to a point where we can set them down and say, if you will do this, this, and this, there will be no prosecution. Even to the extent that we put that in the statute, that if they're going to be charged and they agree to go in to an addiction recovery program, they cannot be charged. Mike, I need to interrupt you for just a moment and uh, pause for a second to, before we move on to our next segment to take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsor. We'll be right back. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. 
Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud, and is it a difficult process? No, with most cloud computing providers, moving your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. And even if you have an existing legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running in the cloud in less than five minutes and can have their data imported in a matter of hours or days. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O dot com. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Craig Williams, and with us today is Thomas Costelli from the American Civil Liberties Union of Tennessee and the Tennessee House Representative and retired Judge Mike Carter. Mike, I apologize for interrupting you right before the uh, the break, but if you want to finish your thought, please go ahead. No, I, I, my concern, and I'm sure is Thomas's concern, is that we need to do something to help these women have productive, addiction-free lives. This is our first stab at it. Remember that Tennessee had a law in effect that did exactly the same thing from 1983 to 2012. There was an amendment to that law which inadvertently or certainly without knowledge of the House eliminated this statute where a mother could be charged. It's what we used to call the old crack baby statute. So we do have about a 25-year history to look back and see if there are going to be discriminatory acts. Are there too many prosecutions? Is this helpful or harmful? Lastly, because the pro-life people, and and Representative Bill Dunn of Knoxville is just one of the most uniquely uh, amazing, a great thinker, a compassionate man, a great representative. His wife is one of the leaders of the pro-life movement in Tennessee. So for him to come to me and say, Mike, I oppose you on this, I had to stop and think about that. So when you have the pro-life people saying, no, we're afraid we're going to drive women into abortions as opposed to jail, I think people are not looking at what's actually happening in our courts. We don't put these people in jail. There is nowhere to put them. To put them there is an absurdity to begin with. Number two, there is no room. They need to be in in policies and programs uh, that will help them beat their addiction and lead them into a positive. And and and, and let's, let me, Mike, let me bring Thomas in here for a second um, and let me ask a question to him. Thomas is, if a baby dies as a consequence of a mother's drug use, does this statute give the opportunity to the prosecution to charge uh, that mother with murder or some type of uh, involuntary manslaughter? Uh, no, the, the stat, this statute only affects, aggra- uh, not aggravated, simple assault. So uh, if the child dies, the mother can be charged with simple assault. The bill, as it was originally proposed, was to amend the homicide statutes, but that was dropped at some point during the process. And what came, what was actually came to the vote uh, for the General Assembly was just amending the statutes that have to do with assault. So there is no, uh, at this point, no vehicle for a prosecutor to charge a woman with murder 
or any homicide-related offense. And in fact, there is still the language in the homicide statute that specifically says that a woman cannot be charged with homicide for any act or mission that she may take with regard to her own fetus or embryo. And there's been some claims, Tom, of uh, some rural women in Tennessee not having any access to the treatment programs that are required mm-hmm. to invoke the safe harbor uh, exemption under this statute. Do all women in Tennessee have access to these treatment programs that provide this exemption? Yeah, that's one of the uh, the things that I've been hearing most from my conversations with the, the folks out there in Tennessee that are involved in drug addiction treatment is that there's just not enough there's not enough access to that type of health care here in Tennessee. You know, if the point of this law is to drive either drive women to to get drug treatment uh, before they get pregnant or while they're pregnant, or is to uh, encourage women who are addicted to, to seek out that treatment, you know, nothing in the law actually, or no other law, expanded the access to that treatment. From what we know, from what I've been told by uh, the people in the industry, there's probably, there's about, I think, 17 facilities in the state that actually treat uh, pregnant women with drug addiction problems. And of those, there's only two that can accommodate a woman and other adult children, or not adult, other other children. So, um, so two facilities in the entire state that could that can treat both a pregnant woman with an addiction and also accommodate her other children so that she does not have to split her family. Um, there are situations, for example, one of the highest rates of NAS in the state of Sullivan County, which is up in the northeast uh, corner of our state. The nearest treatment facility to Sullivan County, which has this high percentage of NAS, for inpatient residential treatment for pregnant women is Knoxville, Tennessee, which is about 110 miles away. So there's a lot of concern that women, and, and Sullivan County is not necessarily rural. I mean, there's the Tri-Cities up there is a, a fairly populated area of the state, but there are much more rural areas in the state that may, may not have access to uh, a residential drug treatment facility. And, and that's another problem that, that with this law, as it says, if you seek treatment before birth and complete the treatment after birth, then you have an affirmative defense to the prosecution. Not that you cannot be prosecuted, but that you may have a viable affirmative defense. So if you can't get treatment because the waiting period for some of these programs are six to eight months, or if you uh, get turned away because you don't have, say, the, the means either to pay for treatment or the right insurance to pay for to get you treatment, then you can't avail yourself of that affirmative defense. So, Mike, what's the, what's the state's response to that? It sounds to me as if there uh, may be some issues. Well, the response, and I appreciate Tom's, Tom's position, but the statute does not require residential treatment. If we're talking about residential treatments where a mom can go in with other kids, nationwide there are very few of those. We're talking about a rehabilitation program. It may be at a local community center. It may be county or city-sponsored. There's no requirement that it be residential. There's none of that. There are multitudes of these programs that do drug testing and counseling. Our problem is it is extremely difficult to let that person 
make their own decision to go. They have to have some encouragement because they're not thinking straight. So there are plenty of programs out there. There may not be the programs that the woman wants, but in their condition, they're going to reject virtually every program. So I understand there are very few residential programs, but the statute does not envision residential programs at all. And Mike, what's the, the what's the what is the legislature's rationale for not including uh, alcoholics in this statute? Uh, because it rarely affects neonatal abstinence syndrome. Right now, not, as I said, ninety four percent of those are uh, Caucasians who are affected by methamphetamine. It's, it's a very minute part of this. In fact, I don't even have any figures for what number of children are born addicted to alcohol. It's that's how low on our reports in terms of the numbers were so small that it didn't even make the reports. Well, thank you. Well, it looks like we've reached the end of our program. We'd like to thank our invited guest, Tom Costelli from the ACLU and House Representative and retired Judge Mike Carter to share their closing thoughts and contact information. So, Thomas, let's start with you. Uh, sure. The uh, best way to get in touch with us here is uh, go on our website at www.aclutennessee.org. That's www.aclu-tn.org. And uh, the contact information for our various departments would be there. And if uh, you're looking for legal help, there's actually a Get Help button you can push and you can fill out a form to submit a claim to the ACLU. And Mike, your final thoughts and your contact information, please? Well, my final thoughts are I, I think Tom and I, everyone agrees that we need to assist people in getting off drugs. And, and so anything that will help and assist with that, I'm going to be in favor of. I hope that this bill works at sunsets after two years. We'll be able to study the past and the present to see if it's effective. And it's not, let's do something else. We need to help these folks, not hurt them or punish them. Uh, although they may create criminal acts, I don't view them as criminal and I've uh, dealt with them for nine years day to day. So I hope I have a little experience in that in the real world, not in the theoretical or the stereotypical world. Anyone that would like to contact me concerning this can is welcome to do so, and they can email me at rep, R-E-P, dot Mike, M-I-K-E, dot Carter, C-A-R-T-E-R, at capital, C-A-P-I-T-O-L, dot T-N, dot gov. And I'd be happy to have anybody's uh, inputs on this. And, Tom, if you hear anything about it or anything that that you think I'd be interested in, please, uh, please call me and let's stay in touch on it. And, hopefully see that this turns into a positive thing. If not, we'll change it and do something better. Okay. Great. Well, thank you, gentlemen. We very much appreciate it. And now we've come to the point in the show where uh, I've got 30 seconds to share my closing thoughts before I get cut off by the buzzer. So here we go. Um, it seems like a very well-intended statute. Uh, I, I understand some of the constitutional issues raised by Tom that concern me greatly regarding the uh, effect of this on women as opposed to men. Uh, I also see it being applied in a way that uh, is not is narrowly uh, restricted to drugs and doesn't include alcohol, despite the apparent low incidence of alcohol-related issues with babies. Uh, maybe it's more prevalent in other states than it is in Tennessee. But sounds like a good way to go. Just looks like there will be some difficulty in applying it and uh, making it work. Uh, I know that we want to protect babies and protect mothers, uh, but this may not be the best way to do it. At least that's my sense of it. Well, that brings us to the end of our show. I'm Craig Williams. Thank you for listening. Please join us next time for another great legal topic. And when you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. 
Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.